Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist Church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit EagleDriveBaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter number 5 this morning. We're continuing our series, as it says, Meaningless, a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. This isn't a meaningless series. Uh, The purpose is to try to find meaning in life. And I really hope and pray that this series has helped you in some aspect. Uh, We're going to look at, uh, as again, as Solomon is really kind of experimenting with life and trying to figure out Uh, what the purpose of life is. Last week, as we talked about and discussed, uh, he went to the uh, political side. He went to the courtroom, the halls of justice. And as he found, as we find as well, that there's no fruit, there's no uh, meaning to that. And men and women are very power hungry. Uh, We talked about that. And really, you just study our own society, and we see that as well. Uh, There's a lot of corruption within our own government. And Solomon saw that as well. Now this week, as we get to chapter 5, he's moving into the temple. He's moving into the aspect of worship. And the point I want to make this morning, as the the title suggests, if you have your notes, it's talking about being recalibrated for worship, but we are very ritualistic in our worship sometimes. What I mean by that is we do things based on uh, traditions, based on if I do this, then God will be pleased with me. Uh, Some of those things aren't necessarily wrong, but I think we have a wrong understanding of what worship truly means. And I want to read something or say something quickly that kind of sets the tone for this message this morning. God did not create you and save you so that He could worship you. Listen to that. God did not create you and save you so that He could worship you. He created you and saved you so that you could worship Him. That's what it comes down to, and that's what we're going to try to unpack this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you'd stand, if you can, as we read God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I'm going to read the first seven verses this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 1. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, talking about when you go to church. Now Solomon is talking about the temple that he went into, the temple that he spent seven years constructing, and be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. I'm going to keep going on because I can get off on a rabbit trail on that verse right there. Uh, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Uh, for he, or, uh, 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 Let me read that again, because I'm getting way ahead of myself this morning already. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow not pay. Suffer not that thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at the voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this day. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we just really dig in these first few verses of chapter 5 and continue this journey that Solomon is taking us on as he's trying to search for meaning and purpose in this life under the sun, this life here on this earth. And as he's already alluded to so many times before, here's a man that had everything, everything humanly possible. He searched for everything humanly possible, and he realized that there is no satisfaction in anything apart from a relationship with God, even religion. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand that because I feel like so many people even come to church, do their ritualistic religious acts, and think that it, it's going to equate to a spiritual relationship with you and it's going to get them into heaven. But Lord, they, they don't understand what true worship is all about. And God, I pray that you'd help me this morning to unpack this principle, that you did not create us. You did not save us so that you could worship us. You created us and saved us so that we could worship you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Again, as we get to chapter 5, this is what Solomon is trying to figure out. He's, he's searched for meaning in anything and everything, and now he's looking at it in the aspect of religion. But there is a problem with religion. There's a problem with religion today, especially in America, since this is where we live. And the problem is that religion is often man-centered. Here's what I mean. Religion can be all about ourselves. What we want. What we desire. And not what God wants. Not what God desires. And I've seen this in pastoring for the past four years. And being in ministry for almost 12 years now. And just being saved since I was five years old. Growing up in a, in a Christian home. Growing up in a pastor's home. I've seen people come to church based out of duty. Obligation. If I do certain things... God is going to be pleased with me. Well, they have a misunderstanding of really who God is. And I want you to pay close attention this morning, because really this message, as the others as well, but this really, I think, gets personal in our lives. So don't turn me off yet. But here's what we try to do. We try to manipulate God. We try to manipulate God to do what we want Him to do. But again... Were we created to manipulate God? It's a simple question. Were we created to manipulate God? No, we weren't. Yet how often do we do that? I'm not going to ask you for illustrations right now, but I'm going to unpack this a little bit later in the message and more tonight. But think about it. How many have kids? How many have kids? Now, some of your kids are here and present right now, but let's be honest. How many parents have ever tried to manipulate your kids? Yes. Yes, exactly. We have our own stories with that. You know, as a parent, you're trying to get your kid to do something, and you have no intention of ever fulfilling it, right? But if you say the right words, then they're going to listen, they're going to obey, they're going to do what you ask them to do. And when they're younger, especially sometimes even when they're older, they're no much wiser. And uh, my wife and I were talking about this last night. I asked her if I could use this, and she said it's okay. Uh, but one way I think that she's used to manipulate our, our oldest son, Nate, is when you know, he starts acting up, she, it's one of those things that she found that works. She just tells him, she's like, Nate, I'm going to stop being your mom. And it just like <laughs> freaks him out entirely. Now, she has no intention of stop being his mom, but he just he loses it. He starts crying, now please don't, don't share this with him, because we're trying to keep this going. But 
um, <laughs> trying to li- help him listen, you know. I, I probably shouldn't say that as a pastor, but anyway, um, that's one way that, that she's found that it's manipulating our son to, to listen, to act right, to do what he's supposed to do. Nate, I'm going to stop being your mom, and he just loses it. No, I don't want you to stop being my mom. Dad's going to stop being your dad. Oh, okay, whatever. Uh, he doesn't do that, but he kind of loses it. Now, he's, he's being manipulated. And I, I think about this in relation to how we act with God. We do the same thing. We're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to, to do things that we think God is going to be uh, appreciative of. Or, or if we do this in a certain way, that, that God is going to be honored with us. And let, let, me, let me help illustrate it a little bit more. Um, again, with, with parents and kids, sometimes... Uh, the child goes to their parent, and they know when the right time to go to their parent. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I was thinking about this last night, too. Uh, I don't know why this got brought up or it came into my head, but uh, there were times when I got in trouble a couple times when I was younger. Not, not often, but a couple times. And uh, when I... Yeah, let's keep it quiet down there. But anyway, when I got in trouble, I tried to find those good times to let my parents know. And in my mind, it was a great time. You know, I got demerits at school that day, or I had, you know, at our school, the Christian school I went to, after five demerits, it was a detention. You know, you have to stay after school, have a detention. Uh, so there was a few times in my life where I had, you know, had several detentions or whatever. So I had to have detention, and, and my thought was, okay, the best time to do it so I'm not going to get in trouble is right before I go to bed. Like, I'm walking up the stairs. Oh, by the way, I got a detention t- tomorrow. Uh, sign this paper. All right, good night. See you later. In my mind, I thought, man, this is going to be perfect. Like, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm going to go to bed. Well, they let me go to bed, but I still got in a lot of trouble. But what I'm saying is a lot of times as kids, we try to find those right moments to talk to our parents, right? Maybe when dad is watching TV, we can ask him for something. Fine, whatever. Just go away. Leave me alone. Hey, dad said yes. Come on, kids, teens. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we do that. And the, the thing is, we do this with our Heavenly Father as well. We feel like, well, if I go to God at a certain time, then He's going to give me what I ask for. But again, is God here to do everything that we ask Him to do? No. We are here, we are created, those of us that have a relationship with Him, are saved to serve God, to live for God. And again, We're trying to unwrap this principle of worship. And the question really I'm trying to ask this morning is this. Who is your Lord? Who do you worship? I'm not asking who you say is Lord. I'm asking who or what you actually worship on a practical, functional level. And here's a key principle. Get this down. Your Lord determines your worship. Notice I have Lord lowercase. It's not capitalized. Your Lord determines your worship. What I mean by that is what is most important to you in your life? For some people, what's most important to them, as we've already discussed, is their job. For other people, what's most important to them is money. Other people, it's, it's stuff. Family, friends, it, it could be a lot of different things, but whatever is most important to you, that is what you worship. And I've seen this true in my life at different hobbies that I've had. You all know my love for golf and sports. And there have been many times where that took the place of a relationship with God because I was all about doing that 
And I forgot about everything else with my relationship with God, which means I didn't have time to read my Bible today. I didn't have time to pray today because I was more interested in worshiping that Lord than the true and living Lord. And all it showed me and all it shows us is that our Lord determines our worship. Terry Schmidt said this, your worship determines your values and direction in life. Your worship sets your heart and anchors your life. Again, American Christianity has become very me-centered instead of being God-centered. Please pay attention. Please listen to this because even those of us that know it, and most of us know this and understand this, but many of us still have this attitude. I'm not going to say all of us, but many of us still have this attitude. We had an opportunity to spend a few days with uh, Amanda's, uh, some of her family this week, and you know, just even some relate or some some conversations that we had with them, and at different times, it's almost comical what we do. We like to take certain scriptures that we like, and we're going to listen to that scripture. But if there's another scripture that we don't like, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to disregard it. And most of us, if not all of us, have done that in some aspects. If there's something that we're passionate about, we know the Scripture that backs it up, right? We know exactly what, what that Bible verse says, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do this and live this and, and give it to you. But then if someone says, well, what about this area in your life? Oh, well, I know I need to work on that. They're more interested in this. And what I mean saying all this is we are trying to make God into our image. We'll listen in the things that we want to listen to. But again, American Christianity has become very me-centered instead of God-centered. I read one pastor this week who said this, Listen, you can go to church and hear little about God and much about you. Here's what he means. Even in messages, sometimes it's more about, you know, here's six, six principles to live a better life for you. Is that a God-centered religion or is that a man-centered? It's more man-centered. Well, we have to give biblical principles for certain things, and I, and I get that. But it's more about what we want, what we prefer, instead of understanding who God is and what He wants from us. And as I've been in ministry for a number of years and just growing up in ministry, I've realized that a lot of people, and I'm not trying to just bash people today, but I've realized a lot of people really don't have much of a relationship with God. And the relationship that they do have is very me-centered instead of God-centered. Here's what I mean. We make things about us. Did I like that sermon? Did he have enough illustrations? Was he wearing a white shirt instead of a Caribbean-colored theme? Did he break enough plates? Did he break too many plates that woke me up? Was the music the music that I like, that I prefer? Should I keep going? No. I think you understand what I'm saying here. Don't we do this? And in, in, in my years of pastoring, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox or anything, but in my years of pastoring and just growing up in a pastor's home, I've seen many people leave the church based on me. What I'm saying is what they wanted. Right? Instead of realizing, you know what? Is this actual scriptural? <laughs> I've used silly illustrations before. Again, and I've heard this, it's not necessarily been here in this church, but people left because they didn't like the color of paint on a wall. 
Like, how foolish is that? Well, they changed the light bulbs, and they didn't ask me which light bulb I'd recommend. How foolish is that? Worship has become all about me or us and our desires, our likes, our preferences, what we want. But listen to me, listen to me. This type of worship is nothing less than idolatry. When your worship is all about you and what you want and not about your Creator, it's idolatry. And we don't like to hear that. I'm not an idolater. I'm not bowing down myself to some image like in the Bible. But again, as I said earlier, our Lord determines our worship. So whatever we put the most amount of time into determines who or what we worship. And again, as I even said last week, looking for that better path, there are a lot of good things that we do in life, right? But is it the best thing? And again, going back to that message with the plates, sometimes we're balancing those plastic plates instead of those glass plates. Because if a plastic plate falls, whatever, it's typically not going to break. But if a glass plate falls... It's going to break. It's going to shatter into a a lot of pieces as you saw last week. And this, this religion, this worship of me, me, my preferences, my desires is creeping into our churches. It's creeping into our homes. Two men have exposed this reality with what they call cat and dog theology. I like this. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this aspect tonight. So I encourage you to be back tonight. But they said this. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. (laughs) I'm not, you know, going off if you're a cat person or dog person, it's neither here nor there. I'm not going to talk more about that right now, but I want to talk more about that tonight and really look at the flaws of both of those. But I like how one of my commentators on this commentaries on this subject of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 specifically put it. Listen to this. He said, so much modern Christianity is like this. God is no longer the almighty sovereign king of the universe. He is a personal shopper. He's our life coach. He's our homeboy. <laughs> He's our genie all rolled into one. We see God as a means to an end and not an end in and of himself. We use God to get what we really want. Well, if I, if I pay my tithes, then God is going to bless me with more stuff. God will, but that's not why you pay your tithes. I, if I come to church, God's going to give me a better job, better promotion. You have it all wrong. And the guy continues, he says, the reason some come to church and give is so that God will give them what they want. So that God will take away their cancer. So that God will fix their family. So that God will provide them wealth. The man continued, he said, I met a man several years ago who has experienced a crisis of faith. Listen to this. He was 40 years old, single. He had gotten away from God and came back to God around the age 35. Because he desperately wanted to be married. He told that preacher that for five years he attended worship services, tithed regularly, volunteered in several ministries, and yet God had still not given him a wife. Now, it's, it's a great thing to be married, but this man is showing us what happens so often in our churches. 
God, I'm doing exactly what you want me to do, and you're still not giving me what I want. Is it about us, or is it about God? You see the problem? He didn't want God, did he? He wanted what God could give him. What he thought God should give him. And religion for this man, and religion for so many people, was not satisfying enough. That's why people leave churches. I I don't know, it's just not my flavor. And I understand that. This church is not for everyone. Don't don't get me wrong, I don't expect everyone to come here and worship God. But so many people just leave and they're, they're shopping here and there and there and there. Because, well, I don't really like that. I don't really like that. You're not going to find a perfect church. You're not. You're not going to find a perfect pastor. You look deep enough. You're going to find a lot of flaws. And there are a lot of flaws in this man. No amens. Thank you. But there are a lot of flaws. There are a lot of things that I don't do right. But religion is not satisfying enough because it becomes a means to use God for what we want instead of standing in awe and reverence of the God of the universe, of who he really is. And here's what Solomon is trying to unpack uh, unpack in in the first few verses of chapter 5. Look at verse number 1 with me. And I've already kind of mentioned this, but here's the first point. Ritualistic religion is meaningless. Ritualistic religion is meaningless. And as Solomon is revisiting the temple, he sees something that I've seen in my life. He sees people who are worshiping insincerely and gratuitously. He sees them going through ritualistic and meaningless motions. The people's worship has become more of a form of negotiation than of submission. Well, I'm going to negotiate with God what I want, what I desire. But look at verse number one. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Talking about they're going to the temple they're or for us today, going to church. Keep thy foot, guard thy foot. Uh, watch your step is basically what he's saying when you go to the house of God. Be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. You see, here is a nation, the nation of Israel, that had lost their worshipful fear and reverence of God. They saw God more as a force of leverage than a Lord to serve. And Solomon exposes three religious rituals that were meaningless apart from a true faith and love for God. And the first meaningless ritual that he is exposing is this, offerings. Good, I'm glad we don't have to give our offerings. Stay with me, it's not what I'm saying. But the text begins with the harsh warning. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. In our vernacular, here's what it's saying. Watch your step. Warren Wiersbe once said, The worship of God is the highest ministry of the church and must come from devoted hearts and yielded wills. And here's the principle with this verse specifically. The direction of your feet dictate the direction of your life. Where are your feet taking you? What is most important to you? Here's what Solomon is basically saying in verse number one. Hey, look at your feet. What are your feet doing? Are they moving towards the temple of God? Are they moving towards a relationship with God? Are you guarding your steps? Are you paying attention to your steps? Are you you not walking at all? Are you looking away from Him? Are you complaining all the time that He abandoned you? Look at your feet. They'll tell you the direction that you're headed. What you're pursuing. What you're chasing. Are you in your life adding things that Stir your affections for Christ. 
He continues. The next phrase, it says this. Be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools, for they consider not the evil they do. What this is referring to is formalism and manipulation. Trying to manipulate God. Here's what I mean. People tend to make sacrifices in order to gain God's favor. If I give my offerings, if I give my tithe, if I give my time, then God is going to do what I want Him to do. That is wrong. That is ritualistic. That is not understanding what true worship is, why we give to God, not in order to get, but because of our love for Him. And so many times I've seen this. People do things not because they really love that person, because they're trying to get something from them, right? We do this with our parents. We do this with our kids. Not saying you don't love your parents, kids, but we do things because we're trying to get something. If I go clean the garage for dad, then he's going to give me what I want, right? Don't we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father? If I go to church and check it off my list, and if I pay my tithes and check it off the list, and if I help in the nursery once a year, check it off my list, God's going to give me exactly what I want. He's going to fix everything in my life. It's a form of formalism and manipulation. I like what Mark Driscoll says. He says, just because you go to church and worship God does not mean you are not a fool. The end of verse 1, it says, Be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools. There are a lot of fools that come to church and sacrifice things. But they don't even consider why they're doing it. And that's what in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're not going to read it for sake of time, but I think Samuel is saying to obey is better than sacrifice. God would rather have us obey Him than to, well, I'm going to give my offering to Him. I'm going to give a couple hours to Him. Listen to this. Sacrifices are not substitutes for obedience. The key to worship is listening to and obeying God. The key to worship is listening to and obeying God. Now, you can talk about how great of a worshiper you are. And I've heard many people in conversations, whether it be in church, whether it be in a small group, whether it be in just typical conversations, they like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about how great of a worshiper they are. But just because you talk about how great of a worshiper you are, just because you can sing all the songs and, and lift your hands in praise, and that's not wrong, but just because you can do that doesn't mean you're a worshiper of the true and living God. Here's the problem. Again, we try to tell God what to do, how to act. But let me give you some profound wisdom. God's Word is not negotiable. Did you know that? God's Word is not negotiable. Well, God, I know the Bible says this, but... Let's make a deal. Again, we do that with our families. We do that with our boss. We do that with a lot of things. God's word is not negotiable. It's written. It's set. It's, it's forever. It's settled. But we're trying to make deals with God. God, if, and I'm going to unpack this here in just a minute, but God, if you do this for me, if you rub my back, I'll rub your back, right? God, if you, if you heal this disease, I promise I will do this for you. That's not worship. That's manipulation. You know why we come to church? It's not just to sing songs. 
Look, I, I love the music, and the music is really preparing the heart for worship. But one of the reasons why the music doesn't overtake the service is because that's not the most important thing. You know what the most important thing is? This, the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And there are certain services where we have a lot more special music, and that's the primary function of the service, and there's nothing wrong with that. But on a typical basis, we're not going to have 45 minutes of worship singing and 10, 15 minutes of message. We're not doing that. If you want a church like that, I'll give you a list of churches that do that. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is right here. Listening to God's Word. Obeying God's Word. Yes, you can be stirred in a song, but the preaching and teaching of God's Word is so important to our lives. We come to church to hear from God and His Word. And the first thing Solomon is exposing, this ritualistic religion is these offerings, these sacrifices that we make, but he's saying you're no different than a fool if you're doing it just to get. Look at verse number 2, he continues on. Be not rash with thy mouth. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Here's what he's saying. The second thing is our prayers. Sometimes our prayers are all about trying to impress God. If we, if we have this flowery speech, if we have all these deep theological truths hidden in our prayers, then God is going to be impressed with us, right? You ever met someone that, you know, every time you talk to them, it seems like they're just trying to impress you with how much they know? I can't stand those people. But sometimes I'm that person. <laughs> and sometimes you're that person. Um, again, thinking about that this week, you know, there are certain things that I am more of an expert on than you are. There are certain things that you're more of an expert on than I am. But isn't it annoying when someone just lets you know how much of an expert they are? Isn't it? It is. And, and again, I, I, I have to fight this in my own life because someone's talking about something that I might know more about than they do. And I'm like, you're an idiot. You're wrong. That's not right. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> yes, I did. But we do the same thing. We try to impress people. We try to impress them with our, our great knowledge of, of whether it be the Bible or about or horses or about cattle or about guns or about golf or whatever it is. We try to impress people with our great knowledge, but who cares? But we do the same thing with God. God, oh, great loving Father. I, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous our prayers to God sometimes. It's like, and God is going to be impressed with, with my knowledge. I'm going to quote 15 verses to him so he knows that I know God's word. Look, the point is, you know, we get annoyed with people like that. No one cares that you know a lot of stuff. And I'm not trying to be mean, but God doesn't care what we know or how well we speak. Prayer is serious business. It's not something to take lightly. We treat God like an earthly parent sometimes, though. Who can be asked at the right time, or if we ask Him in the right way, He'll give us what we want. But God doesn't answer us based on how well we can pray. We can't barter with God because we have nothing to barter with. The point to be made is this. Don't be flippant to God in your prayers. That's what Solomon is trying to expose here. Don't be flippant to God in your prayers, just praying to go through the motions or praying to get something. And I've, I've been just as guilty about this. 
instead of just praying and just giving thanks to God and worshiping God for who he is and what he's done in my life, God, here I am again. Here's my list. Would you like it if someone always came to you with the list of things that they wanted? Eventually, you'd be like, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Now, God is far above that, but that's exactly what we do with God. And if we pray only to impress other people, we're not going to get through to God. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, a great work of literature, he once wrote this, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. So the first religious ritual that he exposes is these offerings, these sacrifices. Second thing is prayer. Look at verse number four. We continue on. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, and thou shouldest vow not pay. The third principle is the vows. Vows or promises, commitments, covenants, whatever you want to say there, were typically made to gain God's favor in order to urge God to grant a specific request. And we have to understand that God never required His people to make a vow to Him. But the opportunity is there to express our devotion to God. It talks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 23. There were times in Scripture where people made a vow to God and they actually fulfilled the vow. I remember the story of Hannah, where she was praying for a child, and if God gave her a child, what was she going to do? She was going to give it back to God. And what did she do? She gave it back to God. And because of that, because of that obedience, God did bless her with other children. She had been barren for so many years, and she gave Samuel back to God. But God never requires us to make a vow, to make a commitment to Him. But the truth is, the key is, if we make a vow, then you better plan on keeping it. And Solomon is warning here of two sins. Listen to this. Making a vow, making a promise with no intention of keeping it, and making a vow and also delaying in keeping it, hoping you can get out of it. Well, if I make this promise to God, again, someone is sick, someone is dying. God, if you just heal them, I will be in church all the time. I will give my money to you. I will give all that I have to you. Two weeks later, everything passes. Everything is fine. Where's that commitment? Well, I, I never really intended to do it. It's because you're trying to manipulate God. Look at verse number six. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore, should God be angry at thy voice? And destroy the work of thine hands. Now the angel can refer to many things. It can refer to a messenger. It can even refer to one of the temple officials whose sole job was to ensure that vows were fulfilled. When worshipers would make a public vow at the temple, and that's what happened a lot back then, the messenger would then go to their house for the people that delayed in keeping the vow and point out their failures. Sounds like an awesome job. Sign me up for that. I'm going to start going to your houses. All right, what vows have you not fulfilled this week? It's pretty serious because God takes it serious. What you say, what you promise matters to God. It's a very big deal to Him. I know we promise things again to our kids that we have no intention of ever keeping. 
We have no intention of ever fulfilling. But if I promise this, they'll shut up. If I promise this, they'll start behaving. They'll start being good. But we do the same thing with God. If I promise God this, he's going to give me what I want, and I'm not going to do what I, what I promised him. What you say matters to God. It's a big deal. And what Solomon is saying is it's better to keep your mouth shut than to make a promise with no intention of keeping it. Should I tell you of a story in the New Testament? A couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had, uh, I believe it was Paul, they had talked to Paul and, hey, we're going to sell all this property, this land, and we're going to give everything to God. Now, they didn't have to do that, did they? They didn't have to go to Paul and say, hey, we're going to do this. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for it. Maybe they saw someone else in the church give a large sum of money, so we got to top that. So we're going to sell this piece of land, and we're going to give everything to the church. But you know what happened when they got that sum back? Oh, man, that's a lot of money. I should keep some. Well, instead of giving the 15000 that I promised to oh, let's give them five. But God takes it seriously, and you know what happened? They both went and talked to Paul and individually, and they probably had, you know, conspired with one another and had their story straightened out. But they both died. God killed them. God took their lives because making a vow with no intention of keeping it is serious before God. Yet how often do we do that as well? I'm thankful for the grace that God has bestowed upon me when I've made a vow, when I've made a promise and not kept it or no intention of keeping it, but it's very serious before God. So what he's saying is there are these ritualistic or uh, religious acts that we do. We give offerings to God, expecting God to give us something back. We pray to God, expect God to give something back to us. Uh, we make vows to God, expect God to give something back to us with no intention of doing it, with the right heart, with the right mind. But look at verse number seven. We're going to wrap all this up this morning. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. Solomon gives some mind-blowing truth in this verse as he's talking about dreams. Here's what he's saying. A dream is a wish your heart makes. Oh, wait, wait, that's Cinderella, sorry. It's not what he's saying. He's saying a dream is not reality. A dream is not reality. Now, Brother Mike struggles with this because he dreams things sometimes. He doesn't know if it's real or not. But a dream is not reality, is it? No, it's not. It's a dream. <laughs> I like what Matt Chandler said on this. He says, when your understanding of God becomes a dream and not reality, you cover up the fact that you don't know him with your many theological words. And that's all pretty much in vain. It's useless. That's what Solomon is saying here. And so many people, I think, live in a dream world. They live in this fantasy that's not really real. They think that their words are the same as deeds. Just because you make a vow to God, just because you pray to God, doesn't mean anything if you have no intention of keeping it. And a lot of people want to dream about fulfilling their promises to God, but they never get around to doing it. And here's what they're doing. They're practicing a make-believe religion that does not glorify God. And the end of this section says in verse number 7, but fear thou God. This is what Solomon is trying to, to help us understand. You see, for the first four or five chapters already, Solomon has done a lot of looking around. 
which means he's, he's looked around at, at the scope of things, at the scope of life, and he's tried to find meaning and, and pleasure and, and money and sex and, and all these things. He said it's meaningless, it's, it's worthless. Sometimes he looked within, got very introspective. Every once in a while, though, he looks up. It's like he peeks ahead, his head above the clouds and tries to, to see God from a different standpoint. And he closes this section by saying, Fear thou God. Now, this is a very difficult concept for some people. This is talking about a reverence, a respect of the highest degree. But listen, how can we fear God when we live in a culture that has no respect for authority? How can we fear God? How can we reverence God? How can we truly worship God when we don't even respect people that are in authority in our lives? Well, they don't deserve to be respected. How do you expect your kids to truly worship God and reverence God when they don't respect you? How do you expect your relationship, if your relationship with your husband or wife is struggling, there's no respect for one another, how do you expect there to be respect for God? You see, it's a vicious cycle that goes on and on and on. Many parents don't respect their parents, they don't respect their teachers, they don't respect their coaches because they're a bunch of fools, they don't know anything. Adults don't respect their spouses, their co-workers, the governing authorities, the law. And when it comes to church, sometimes there's a lack of respect for the pastor. There's a lack of respect for God's man. And this lack of respect has bled over into a casual Christianity where Jesus is my bro. He's my homeboy. He's my life coach. He's my co-pilot. He's not your co-pilot. He's the pilot. It's all about him. But we've made it about us. I'm in the seat right next to God and, and I'm helping him steer. No, He's the one that's supposed to be steering, and we're the ones supposed to be just letting him steer. And there are bumper stickers that talk about this, and that's so messed up. It's such a wrong view of God. To fear God in this, what this is talking about is not to dread and, and fear and terror. It's a holy awe and respect. Basically, it's saying, take God seriously. And what Solomon is doing is he's exposing ritualistic religion. God, I'll do this ritual for you as long as you come through for me. It's clear our under-the-sun lives are in drastic need of something very important. Recalibration. What happens when the GPS gets lost? It has to recalibrate, right? It has to set its whatever to, to get back on track. This is the same thing that needs to happen in our relationship with God, with our worship to Him. And the point I'm trying to make, and the point that Solomon, I believe, is trying to make is this. We must be recalibrated for worship. Recalibrate means to make small changes to an instrument so that it measures accurately. Sometimes you have to recalibrate or retune a, an instrument. I've used this illustration before, but... If someone's playing the guitar and it's totally off, off key, you don't necessarily notice it if they're playing by themselves, but if they're playing with another instrument, it sounds awful. And they have to be recalibrated to the instrument that is on tune. You know the instrument that is on tune in our lives? It's God. It's our relationship with Him. And sometimes we must be recalibrated for worship. Here's the thing. When you look at your problems and all you see is this mess, then it's time to recalibrate for authentic worship. In external religions... Traditions are the center of focus. But in a real relationship with God, 
Jesus is the center of our focus. And I've seen many churches and I've seen many people that it's all about traditions. I can't believe they got rid of that. Who are you worshiping? Who is your Lord? The fact that we come and do things the same way all the time, and we stand at this time, we sit at this time, who is your Lord? Who are you worshiping? Again, I'm going to check it off my list. I served. I'm not saying you shouldn't serve. You should, but with the right heart. You should promise thanks to God, but actually intend to fulfill them and keep them. Think about this. And, and again, I don't know how many times I went to youth camp growing up as a, as a kid, as a teenager, as uh, a counselor. I went forward at the altar, and, and I made a commitment to God that I'm going to do better than this, and I did. About three weeks. Some people are probably like, ah, that's why I never come forward. Well, that's wrong too. But when you come and make a decision before God, actually intend to keep it. And here's what happens when we've recalibrated our hearts to worship. We understand three simple principles that we're going to unpack more tonight. Worship places me, worship profits me, and worship portions me. Listen to this. Worship is not an act of appeasing God. It's an act of adoring God. We don't worship to be accepted. We worship because we've already been accepted. How many of you have ever uh, done this? You know, you kind of drag, drag your feet across the carpet to try to shock someone. Don't you love that? Some of you guys are probably going to do it after the service today. But worship, listen, is a spark that is the result of people falling in love with their creator. Again, most folks have had the experience of dragging their foot or their shoe across the carpet and then reaching out and touching someone else only to see a spark from that friction that transfers through their body and, and, and to someone else as they touch that person. That's how worship is. You rub against God long enough and something is going to shock somewhere. Worship is rubbing against God and seeing the result of shock. Being close to God produces a spiritual electric infusion of life and vitality. What I mean is, if you're having a true relationship with God, if you are truly worshiping God for who He is, not to, to show people how great you are, but if you're truly worshiping God for who He is, not to get things from Him, then other people are going to take notice. Not because of your words, but because of your life. It's backing it up. And Solomon, he's on this journey and when he looked around, he saw hopelessness. When he looked within, he saw despair. But as he started to look up, you know what he did? He saw hope in God. And that's what we must do to go from a meaningless life, a meaningless existence, to a meaningful existence. Worship must flow from a genuine love and not a forced obligation. Worship is what frames and filters the world around you. Worship is not an endurance contest, but a marvelous adventure into the presence of the God of the universe. It's not business as usual, but a wonder-filled ride into a new dimension of life. It's not a mundane trip, but a memorable flight. And on that journey, our reaction will not be simply, oh, that was a nice service, that was a nice trip, but rather in the words of a child who has flown for the first time, if they really enjoyed it, man, that was awesome. That's what our worship with God must be like. When we come to church, wow, that was awesome. Not because the message was anything great, but I experienced God. 
And it's not just experiencing God when you come to church. You should be experiencing God and have a relationship with him in your home, in your work, outside of here. But the point I'm trying to make and the point Solomon is trying to make is this. Do not be ritualistic in your worship. Quit going through the motions with God. And this is something that just oh, it irritates me in my own life and it irritates me as a pastor because I see so many people doing this. They're just going through the motions. Well, I'm here. I'm checking off my list. I gave my tithe. I gave my sacrifice to God. I, I made a promise to God that I had no intention of keeping more than a couple weeks. I did what I'm supposed to do. Solomon says, no, 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 no. Fear God. Reverence God. Respect God. Adore God for who he is. Quit going through the motions because you know what happens? It sickens God. It disgusts God. It angers him. Just like your kids, if they're going through the motions, they're not listening to you, it disgusts you. How do you think our Heavenly Father feels when we do the same thing with Him? So quit being ritualistic in your worship. Quit going through the motions. Quit trying to manipulate the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer of life. He is not yours to manipulate. He is there to serve, to reverence, to respect to adore, to worship. You see, looking up to God aligns my heart to what authentic worship really is. I'm going to stop here this morning. We're going to dive a lot deeper into this aspect tonight. I encourage you to be back to your classes, but don't go through the motions. Worship is about coming into the presence of God. It's not a one-time-a-week thing. Well, I went on Sunday morning. Boom, check it off. You know, I'm, I'm glad when people are here all the time, but just because you're here all the time doesn't mean anything either. Because I've been in church long enough to where people are just checking that off the list. I've been here three times a week or five times a week when they have the doors open and they're, they're doing this project and that project and that project. But there, there's no real relationship with God. Don't be ritualistic. It's time to find meaning in the only source of meaning, and that is a relationship with your creator. How do you have a relationship with someone? You have to spend time with them. You have to get to know them. And what I've learned in my four years specifically as a pastor is a lot of people, they know facts about God, but they don't really know God. Because if you truly knew God, you know what he would want what he would desire, what pleases him. And as Solomon was saying all this, don't just make sacrifices and vows and prayers. It's more about listening to and obeying. You know, instead of my kids as they grow up, instead of them always doing stuff for me to get something, I'd rather them just listen and obey. How do you think our Heavenly Father feels? I think he'd rather us listen and obey his word. Don't be ritualistic. 